This podcast is a production of Queen's Public Television in New York City. Visit us on the web at qptv.org. Hey, I'm Mark Bacino, and this is Queen's Creative. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening, and welcome to another episode of the Queen's Creative Podcast coming to you from Queen's Public Television in New York City. On today's pod, I welcome Queen's Poet Laureate Maria Lacella. Awarded the Poet Laureate position in 2015 by then Borough President Melinda Katz, Queen's native and current Astoria resident Ms. Lacella is the sixth poet to hold the borough's esteemed laureate title. In 2020, Maria was also named a Poet Laureate's Fellow by the Academy of American Poets and to date has three books of poetry to her credit as an author. In addition to her work as a poet, Ms. Lacella has also taught at college level and holds a master's degree from NYU Polytechnic Institute. And if all those accomplishments weren't enough, the talented Ms. Lacella is also a skilled journalist, currently New York culture editor for the Jerusalem Post and an award-winning travel writer with a 30-year career that has taken her to over 60 countries and seen her work published by such outlets as USA Today and Travel and Leisure. Listen in on this episode as Maria and I discuss Maria's Queen's roots, her love of poetry, the creative process, her work as a travel writer, and much more. Then, after our talk, be sure and stick around as Maria treats us to a special reading of two original poems. Okay, let's jump right over to my interesting conversation with Queen's Poet Laureate and journalist Maria Lacella. Hi, Maria. Welcome to Queen's Creative. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, it was my pleasure. You know, I, I thought we'd start things off by discussing your very cool Queen's Poet Laureate title, right? For our listeners who might not be familiar, could you talk a little about the laureate position and what it is and the official responsibilities that come with the title? So the Queen's Poet Laureate um, started... Now I'm going to forget the, the year. But in any case, it was um, under Borough President Claire Schulman. Um, there were a lot of actual um, cultural initiatives that were started under her administration, including the Museum of the Moving Image, by the way. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. And, and Queens College played a big role in developing this position. I was sworn in under Borough President Melinda Katz, mm. whose own family, by the way, um, was a very big cultural, um, cultural mavens. I think one, right. one started the Philharmonic and one helped to start the Queens culture for the arts or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and she was very supportive. So essentially it's a competitive position, com- competitive situation. You submit 10 pages of your poems, um, a panel of experts that, um, will review the work. They choose a few candidates and they'll be interviewed and read their work out loud. So um, that panel is usually made up of cultural institutions or representatives Mm -hmm. from cultural institutions, libraries, universities, uh, could be a couple of writers, um, museum, what else? Uh, Queens Council on the Arts, St. John's, maybe would have the art college and so on. Anyway, so those people interview you essentially the job which is Mm non-paying simply demands that you initiate at least three programs within your each year and it's a three-year um it's usually a three-year position the person before me paulo javier had it for four years i'm moving into my sixth year sixth year yeah you know, this is also pandemic. Um, I should have actually been done with it in 2018. It was 2015 to 2018. Um, but I, I did actually an enormous amount of um, events. My my predecessor, Paolo Javier, was really a, a wonderful experimental poet. And uh, he was also the director of programming at Poets House. Uh, and is a good friend. Mm-hmm. He he initiated a giant event at Queens Museum. It was like an all day reading with like a hundred poets or wow. something. That's cool. Um, I actually chose to do something quite the opposite. 
which were smaller, more intimate events, but a lot more of them. And when I, when I was sworn in, the Queens libraries were, uh, had partnered with the position and they had not always been partners. So that became my platform to reach the public without having to reinvent the wheel. From there, um, I've done workshops. Now I've done workshops also. Um, but at that time, it was mostly readings, open mics, small workshops, uh, summer poetry contests that encourage people from third grade to adults to submit their work. And then that would culminate into a public reading, usually at Flushing, um, Flushing Library, oh, cool. which had very nice, cool. yeah, very nice audience, you know, very nice auditorium. Uh, so the, the idea of the people who are choosing the Poet Laureate, to have people represented, represent some of the cultural institutions, that's essential. And that's what didn't happen in the interim. Mm-hmm. Um, and the entire process got a little bit off kilter because Melinda Katz had left. She went to become DA. It was a little hiatus. So that's why I continued with, with the title. But the people who um, are involved with the administration of the Queens Poet Laureate become essentially the contacts for the Poet Laureate to reach out to and say, you know, I'd like to do a program at your place, at your venue, whatever. And so that's why we provide, those people should be provided in the process. So the process has to be a little bit um, streamlined and I'm hoping to have that conversation with Donovan Richards at some point. Further, last year, I won a national fellowship from the Academy of American Poets. And that was a national position. And it was available only to Poets Laureate. So I was very lucky that my title, you know, got extended. Um, The other thing that happened in 2017-18 was my husband got very sick and he died in 2018. So even though my title was officially supposed to be over... Um, it looked like the bar park president office was going to allow me to extend it anyway mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. Little, you know, because of his death. And I was okay. essentially non-functioning for a while. So, um, but I think that was kind of understandable, but yeah, the, for sure. the, the, the Queens poet, um, Queens laureate, Queens poet laureate fellowship with the American Academy of Poets, however, also offered me a new opportunity and so I developed a series of workshops and I did them at um, museums such as Noguchi Museum, the Greater Astoria Historical Association, um, various Queens libraries, Sage, and um, a few other places. Mm-hmm. That was really gratifying because workshopping wasn't something that I knew cold. It was, it was kind of a new skill for me. And... And I really embraced it and I really loved it. And the most gratifying thing that came out of it is that within all the series of workshops I held, six weeks, four weeks, six weeks, and and that went on and on, 14 people, individuals, decided they wanted to stay together. And they formed something called Thursday Morning Poets. Right, I've seen your involvement in that, yeah. Yeah, and that group performed at the New York City Poetry Festival on Governor's Island. And that cool. that group will continue. So that's a little bit long story on the Queens Court Laureate. <laughs> Queens Court Laureate, you don't get paid. You're supposed to do at least three events a year, um, and I've done many more than that. But it's been a pleasure, you know. And I've met so so many really wonderful people in this um, process. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of offshoots that have come out of it, out of your experience with it. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Um, so yeah, that was it was. And, you know, the timing was kind of funny because while I had that hiatus when my husband was sick, um, it also became a lifesaver, you know, because it forced me to be involved at a time when I kind of wanted to hibernate, um, which is not really the healthiest thing to do. No, no, right. And he was also a poet. Right, I saw, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, coincidentally, when when I applied for the Poet Laureate, it was the second time I applied. The first time I was a runner-up, and I didn't get it, and Julio Marzan got the title. Then Paulo Javier 
got the next title. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was pretty excited to apply. And my husband, in fact, was thinking of applying. And he said, well, you're really the queen's resident. So I'll <laughs> wait another time and you go ahead and do it. So, um, so I did. And so I was really, really excited about it. That's great. And um, Melinda Katz was great. Very supportive. She showed up in a million places that she wouldn't normally have showed up in. Mm-hmm. And so it was, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. And Jennifer Weprin was also very key to making mm-hmm. that position successful. That's great. That's great. Um, I mean, anyway. it's no, it's that's it's. So you'll it's, have to edit me <laughs> No, 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 no. Uh, I'm I'm very you know curious. I'll, I'm very curious about uh, about it, and I think a lot of people don't know about you know the fact that Queens has a poet laureate. So it's it's good to get some background on it. What's different about it is that the one in Brooklyn is appointed. Oh, I see. The one in Queens is competitive. Right, right, right. So. Cool. Interesting. Well, you know, I I wanted to rewind things a little bit and talk to you about your background. Um, sure. You know, you're a native New Yorker with some deep Queens roots. Um, you were born in South Jamaica. You were raised in Belrose. You lived in Flushing as a student before you settled in Astoria, where, where you live now and you've lived for many years. Um, can you describe what it is about this borough that obviously means so much to you having, you know, lived so much of your life here? Yeah, you know, it's kind of a funny question because um, you could say, well, you know, because I was born here, I stayed here. But there was a period in my life when Manhattan really was a lure, Mm -hmm. especially Greenwich Village, which is where my mother was born uh, on Carmine Street. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I I lived a lot of my life in Manhattan, whether it was a job or it was uh, taking dance classes or... um, so there was a lot of that. And, but I took my first trip to Europe when I was, I think, 19. I went to Italy. Mm-hmm. Second trip I took maybe when I was about 23. And when I came back, I came back with uh, a boyfriend who was not from uh, Queens, but he was originally from Queens. He was from Astoria. And we decided to move in together and we decided to look in Astoria first. And I realized um, it was like kind of the most European corner of the -hmm. city for me. And it was only affordable and it was a place that I could understand. Okay. Um, So we moved into this Greek neighborhood and, um, you know, chock full of very small stores you know, there was a store at one point that sold butter and eggs, and that's that's all he sold. <laughs> as soon as he was done with selling the butter and eggs, it was closed. Uh, closed the store, right? Yeah, that's it. And because the 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 rents at that time were you know ridiculously cheap, mm-hmm. so so a story became for me kind of a little bit of an extension of Europe. It's now much more multicultural, has more Latins in it, has Asians in it. Um, it's it's a lot more interesting. Um, than it might have been before, but that was the old Astoria, and um, and it was already kind of a gateway for people coming in from another place. Um, there's little pockets of Irish, also, which overlaps, I guess, with Sunnyside and Woodside. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's kind of constantly changing, like everything else is. But this, you see the changes in your supermarket. You walk into the supermarket, and all of a sudden, there's a big display of Brazilian products, and you go, oh. Brazilians live here now. Oh, <laughs> right. I wonder who they are. And and it goes on like that. Ever-changing queens. Yeah, yeah. and, the, and the, the supermarkets alone can be like small cultural experiences. Um, this is particular to Astoria, but it's also true in Richmond Hill, which has changed over the years from, you know, Italian to Guyanese and Pakistani and Indian and Bengali. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, you know... It's um, I find Queens just the most fluid of all the boroughs. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, I love it's so diverse, and you know that's what makes it amazing. We apparently have 139 languages that are spoken in in Queens. Yeah, Pretty amazing. What was it like for you growing up in Queens? Like, what was that experience for you as as a kid? Um, in in Jamaica. Uh, I lived on 116th Drive, right near what was Baisley Park. I think it's called something else now. Um, and my aunt lived down the block, my aunt and my cousins. So for me, it was kind of a little bit of a village. But the time that I was growing up, um, 
it, it was mostly African-American. Mm-hmm. There were very few uh, white families within a few blocks of each other. And, but that community was so, uh, they were so aligned with each other because economically we were all about the same. And the, the idea of family with African-American families, okay, this was the 50s and 60s, so it was colors, it was Negroes, it, you didn't say black. But, mm-hmm. you know, the idea was that they were families like ours. And so right. there was a lot of commonality rather than um, disparate economic classes. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I learned very early that it's economics that is actually more key than the color of your skin or the country you come from. And it's economics and, the, and class, mm-hmm. education, social class. And class really, I hate to use the word, but trumps, you know, <laughs> yeah. color, trumps race. Mm-hmm. And um, that was kind of a very important lesson. When we moved to Belrose, that was a very white neighborhood. And that was kind of a shocking experience, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, very different than what you were used to. Yeah, it was shocking because we were the dark people. And um, and that neighborhood wasn't that friendly mm-hmm. initially. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was kind of an odd move. But uh, anyway, my mother still lives there, and now her neighborhood is Indian. Yeah, again. <laughs> so it's like totally Indian. <laughs> and it really made it actually more interesting because it wasn't that interesting. Right. But, right. So. so my next question has to be this. How does a kid from Queens find her way to poetry. I mean, when I was growing up in Queens, kids were, you know, out playing stickball and basketball in the schoolyard. I wasn't running into too many poets. I mean, it's kind of unique. How did you come to your love of poetry? Well, I lived in a household of a couple of languages. My grandparents lived with us. It was a three-generation household. My grandparents spoke uh, Italian dialect. My mother could speak Italian and dialect and English, of course. And Mm -hmm. Learning the language orally, which is how I learned Italian or dialect first, um, was a game. So words were a game. But I also went to Catholic school. And Catholic school, Me too. the nuns were incredibly literate. Mm-hmm. They were the most literate women I'd met, the most educated women I knew. Um, because not everybody went to college in my family. Um, so they particularly emphasized grammar, writing, composition, the word was really, really mm-hmm. important. important. And of course, the message was also religious, but that really wasn't only the message. It was about communication. It was about phonics. It was about hearing the sound. It was about talking out loud. It was about listening. And I think nuns really provided an incredible patchwork of information about the word, because that's just what their orientation was. Right. You know? And um, so I, I think I, I realized that my first poem was a haiku when I was about 16, and it was in Dominican Commercial High School's newsletter. <laughs> and I guess that really was like my first right. public, you know, pu- published poem. Wow. Wow. That's so, cool. So it was the nuns that uh, the nuns. I think the nuns, yeah. They <laughs> the nuns influenced you. Yeah, because they created a love of poetry. They read poetry. They emphasized it. Yeah, they had a lot of rules. Um, sure. But you didn't leave uh, even a grammar school without knowing how to write a composition. That's true. Uh, That's true. I, I, I'm a, a Catholic school survivor myself, so I, <laughs> I, I can, uh, I can attest to that. It's true. It's true. But you know, I was also um, by the time I got to high school, um, it was Vatican too. Mm-hmm. Vatican II was an enormously radical event in the Catholic Church. Um, that was when Pope John XXIII was in the Vatican. And, you know, that began the whole modification of uh, nuns' habits were getting shorter. Modernization um, of things. Was, yeah, there was English spoken at Mass rather mm-hmm. than Latin. Latin right. The, uh, the priest no longer had his back to you. He faced the mm-hmm. parishioners during mass. So, and it was also the time of Vietnam. Right. It was the time of civil rights. 
um, it was a great time in, in that, in that sense that, um, it was a stimulating time. Sort of a Renaissance sort of. Yeah. 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 And you know, you had, you had singers who were poets, right. You know, the, the music was poetic. Mm -hmm. You sort of had it everywhere, whether it was, you know, love story and Rod McEwen, whether you like him or not. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, Bob Dylan and John Baez and, you know, Judy Collins, all these people were singing poetry and some of it was protest poetry. So it blended um, politics and poetry. Yeah. Yeah. It was an amazing time for sure. It's, a, it's, it's, it's sometimes a, it's a shame that we don't, we don't have a similar thing going these days. I mean, you see little glimpses of it, but uh, you know, you have to search it out, I think more than you used to. I think it's, uh, that's for sure. Now I wanted to fast forward a, a bit to the present. Um okay. You know, you, you currently have three published books of poetry to your credit as an author, uh, Thieves in the Family, Amore on Hope Street, and Two Naked Feet. I uh, was hoping, can you tell us a little about each of these collections that you have? Yeah. Um, Two Naked Feet was actually my first foray into creating a collection in a little chapbook form. And it was really Roxanne Hoffman, who runs Poets Wear Prada, who really um, encouraged me. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, "What? Why? Why aren't? Why aren't I publishing you?" Mm-hmm. I said, "I don't know. You know? It's a good and question." So like, yeah, it was like, "Wow, good idea." So that was first, and then after that, Finishing Line Press um, provided the platform for a, a larger chat book. Okay, and that was Amore on Hope Street, and that that chap that chat book. I'm very proud of it. It's really a very pretty chapel. Well, I'll show you because you're here. Um, <laughs> yes, it's a great I found this Matryoshka doll who has the words um, desiderio in Italian, love in English, drama and courage. And it was Italian and English. And I found it online. And Amore on Hope Street is actually a restaurant in Stanford, Connecticut. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And... Um, I used to go there with my mother-in-law who uh, also passed away, but she, um, she really loved that restaurant. So, um, so she was kind of an inspiration for that one. It's a great title. Yeah. It really put my heart and soul into that. And Finishing Line Press produces such great, um, beautiful looking chat books. And I think at that time, the uh, editor was Leah, Leah Mains mm-hmm. and she's still with them. And, um, and, you know, it taught me how to market my book because they give you an outline of how to do it. It was really an educational experience. And then the third book, again, I have to thank uh, Raymond Hammond for um, liking my work. He heard me read one night, asked me to send my work in. And um, I put together this book, this collection, which includes... Um, there's like a little section on immigration. There's a section on family. There's a section on love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that. I, I, and I learned that when you put a book together, you know, in some ways it's a little bit of a team effort because uh, chances are you're going to have someone help you read it. My husband read everything, of course. Um, then I had my friend Rosalind help mm-hmm. me. My friend Canada helped me. People who had done this before. And, um, and it, it's such it's like a wonderful experience. Um, the next book I've written, which isn't published yet, is called The Man with the Plan. Oh, the wow. Man so with you, a plan. You're, you finished it or, or is it it's still in the finished works? finished it and um, I'm peddling it around trying to get it published. Um, it's a chat book, but it's mm-hmm. an unusual one. It's It mainly took its um, inspiration from my stepson, Mario. Um, I was a stepmother. Mm-hmm. Um still am. And Mario is 43. So I met Mario 40 years ago. And um, he does have a mental illness. He's also very creative. And so in the book, I have one of his poems and I have three from my husband Mm -hmm. who didn't write that much about his kids uh, initially because they both have a mental illness and we always preserve their privacy. Mm -hmm. But with my husband's death, I felt like you know, part of my voice is being a stepmother. Right. And I think it doesn't hurt to share the experience of having mentally ill children in your family mm-hmm. and how you deal with that. 
And so that's why I put Mario's poem in the, in the book also. Oh, that's great. Um, so I'm hoping that gets published pretty soon. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, well, you know, it's always tough. I know in the, as a musician, you know, it's always trying to, it's tough to get get your stuff out there, but you got to be persistent and eventually it happens. You know, you've got, you've got a good track record. So um, sort of in, in keeping with the theme of your, of your work and your, your books, I've noticed, you know, your Italian American background is a, sort of a prominent presence in your work. Um, how important a role has that culture and, and those roots played in your development as a poet? I was curious about that. Yeah, I can't underestimate that because, um, okay, so I met my husband, um, wow, um, over 40 years ago, but we didn't date for a long time. And um, we were both, I mean, he's also he's also Italian-American. Mm-hmm. Um, we were both stymied in certain ways about our politics was progressive, both of us. What drove us crazy was the image of Italian Americans in the media. Right. Drove us crazy because we knew there was more to the story than having the most right wing people. (laughs) That's right. It's very frustrating sometimes. Yep. Yeah. And so what we did was together, we kind of created a curriculum of Italian American readings. Mm -hmm. And that included Mario Puzo's Fortunate Pilgrim which a lot of people don't know about, but it's about an Italian family who moves to America mm-hmm. and what happens to them, right? It's the immigrant story, it, but it's not the godfather, right? okay? And there were others. And then we also sort of delved into the politics and learned about other people like, you know, Angela Bombace, who was a, a famous, not so famous in the Italian community, but um, a union leader mm-hmm. um, who risked so much to be able to do what she did. And um, Vito Marcantonio, Fiorella LaGuardia, mm-hmm. um, Leonard Cavello. And these people we sort of exhumed, right? Mm-hmm. But having done that, we also bumped into what was called the Italian American Writers Association, okay. who had been running um, monthly readings from 1991. Mm-hmm. And they're still running. So it's, you know, we're running a long time, 30 years. And that group gave voice to people like Maria Maziotti Gillen. Um, and, and listening to these voices at Cornelius Street Cafe or Barnes and Noble's uh, Astor Place, wherever they were located, um, gave us the idea that, you know, there is another experience, Italian-American experience. It's not all the same. Right. Everyone has different ones. There, there are certain commonalities. And Iowa kind of drew um, mostly progressive Italian-Americans to it. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it was the Yusef Hawkins murder is what partly inspired the formation of this group. Okay. Um, because, again, the only Italian-Americans that were viewed were the ones... Um, you know, raising, you know, watermelons over their heads and Bensonhurst and, you know, it was very skewed. And we realized also that in, in the established um, publishing world, Italian Americans didn't always get their books reviewed quite as often as other groups. Really interesting. Wow. And um, there were a lot of little funny things like that. And so Iowa provided kind of a, an educational platform for both of us. Mm-hmm. My husband wrote eight books of poetry, actually, wow. um, before he died. And, um, and he really only learned Italian at the age of 50. Um, so we felt like it was also part of our experience not to be ashamed of who we were. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And, and so so we kind of developed these different routes. So our interest in Vino Marcantonio was also based on the fact that my husband uh, lived and worked in East Harlem for a period of time. Uh, so he was very familiar with that area, which had been the largest Italian-American neighborhood in the country at one point. And um, that led later to the formation of the Vino Marcantonio Forum. Okay. which continues now. It's an educational organization 
And it's always linked, our events are always linked with cultural events. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's a little bit based on Antonio Gramsci's, you know, um, mission or, you know, belief that it's through culture that you change minds. Right. And right. so, yeah, so this is like, it's, it's really, so it's, the Italian American identity became very essential to me because I felt like I had to face it. But I don't describe myself as an Italian American author. Right, right. It's a part of who you are, but it's not who def- doesn't define you per se. Right. You don't want that to happen, but it does happen. And in publishing, to be a hyphenated American, you know, is not always where you want to be. Right. So I did go out of my way to get my work published by non-Italian press at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, as it is now. Uh, presses like Wernicke in Canada and Bordighera Press really have a lot more prestige than they did initially mm-hmm. um, because there is sort of a big open space for us. But, you you know, um, and you don't have to write about your grandmother anymore. But it really helped develop a lot of uh, writers' voices. And um, we've seen that over the, over a period of 30 years, people developing a lot more books. Uh, their voices have gotten more sophisticated and kind of more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think essentially when you have an ethnic background, it's really essential that you that you look at it, you see what it's worth, you see what it can give you. And you write first, of course, you know, on the thing about the things you know. Right, right. You know, and then and then work out from there. Hopefully people work beyond their own little, you know, ethnic mm-hmm. community to understand that it's what we have in common is what keeps us human as right. opposed to you just, you know, one or another. And I think that's something that hmm, we're sort of having to think about now more than ever. For sure. And I like what you said about you don't have to write about <laughs> grandmothers anymore, you know, sort of those stereotypical Italian-American things. And it sounds like you know, you and your husband were able to sort of expand that, you know, point people in a different direction, but still, you know, retaining sort of the Italian American roots, which is which is very cool. Yeah. I think what happens is when when you're a writer, you will always look through that lens mm-hmm. or that filter. Everything that comes through you comes through that filter. But it really doesn't mean you have to stamp, like you said, you know, have your grandmother's uh, sauce <laughs> right. recipe. Right, exactly. But you might start that way. Exactly, exactly. Now, I wanted to ask you also, being that this is Queen's Creative and all, <laughs> I'd be negligent if I didn't ask you about your creative process as a working poet. I was curious, you know, do you make it a point to sit down and write something every day? Um, do you just write when the mood or inspiration strikes? Uh, how does that work for you? Um, I'm a lot messier than my husband was in this area. In fact, I always used to say... Um, I wish I was more like you, <laughs> which I, I still wish I was because he was incredibly disciplined. Um, he wrote like all the time. I mean, he would take his notebook and whatever he, weird detail he would gather uh, would probably land in some sort of poem later on. Um, I don't, I am not as driven to do that, mm-hmm. but what I do, I have a funny process I think um, I do a lot of thinking about what I'm going to do or I scribble things into my phone. Um, But what really helps me is having groups like Madison poets, which is a group that I meet with on Thursday nights. And we've been meeting for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And I learned about this group through Deanna Festa, who passed away in 2011. Um, I'm involved in an online poetry circle called Brevitas uh, I'm involved with the Thursday morning poets. Mm-hmm. So I kind of have deadlines. I mean, because right. I'm a journalist, I kind of need deadlines. Brevitas is a group that we um, write twice a month on the 15th and the 1st, um, a poem of 14 lines or less. Mm-hmm. We circulate just through email. There may be, we might be about 55, 60 poets now, and we've been doing it for 17 years. Wow. So it's like appointment appointment writing almost too. It's, it's, right. it's, it's funny. I was, I've heard that 
about other people and other pursuits, songwriting, like belonging to a songwriting group and know that you have to write something on this particular topic by this day sort of pushes you into that uh, mindset. And then I have to add that, you know, my sister, Julia Lucella is also a poet. And, you know, and I was living with a guy who was, um, I mean, he worked as a social worker um, by profession, but he was really a writer mm-hmm. and, um, and an activist. And uh, those people really influenced me a lot. My sister is, you know, nine years younger than me. My husband was seven years older than me. But we had this going. We didn't sit down necessarily and read each other's work all the time. Mm-hmm. My husband and I, we had a folder in the dining room that was called Scambio Exchange. So we would uh, put kind of drafts of poems in there. And when the other one would have time to look at it, we would and write comments and just keep putting them in there. And um, so, yeah, so I also had great workshop leaders. Uh, Angela Verga, who used to um, run the programs at Cornelius Street Cafe, mm-hmm. was an excellent teacher. Uh, Maria Maziotti Yellen is an excellent teacher. Uh, the Calandra Institute um, has in really rich programs of writers reading, but also um, more information about Italian American okay. history and so on. And all of that sort of feeds into each other um, to build what has become a very rich community of people who um, really write a lot more than they did. And their work is getting published a lot more than it was, I think, 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it all kind of serves as inspiration for you. Yeah. Now, you had mentioned, you know, in passing about your career as a journalist, and I wanted to touch on that. So in addition to your successful career as a poet, you've had this amazing 30-year parallel career as a journalist. You're currently the New York culture editor for the Jerusalem Post and an award-winning travel writer, having visited over 60 countries. I mean, some of this stuff is incredible. You've rafted in the Jordan River, ridden horseback in the foothills of Mount Kilimanjaro and so on. So... How did you find your way from poetry to journalism and specifically travel writing? I know. It's like the best job in the world. <laughs> it, it sounds like one of them, for sure. When people look at these lists and surveys, best job in the world is travel journalism. Um, so I, I was always interested in journalism. I, I really liked writing. I started off actually in a dance company when I was uh, younger. Mm-hmm. And then I began writing about dancers and realized that interviewing a dancer is kind of like interviewing an athlete. <laughs> you know, they're, it's, you know they're, their thing is moving. Uh, it's not so much, you know, talking about moving. Right. So I, I found my way to a lot of, you know, I thought journalism was really a glamorous thing. And, um, you know, here I was keeping queens. I didn't really have any seven sister school stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't any links like that um so i went into business writing at first um i worked with something called gallagher's reports when i was first out of college and it was like something from the 1950s that place (laughs) um but it was interesting and that was a funny publication because it essentially relied on running to somebody who just got fired from revlon and they would tell you everything about what just happened at Revlon. And then you would turn that into a story. <laughs> it was like, it was like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't written in a uh, flashy way, mm-hmm. but essentially relied on information from people who were, you know, um, you know, they were, they were mad. Right. It was, it was great. Disgruntled, it was so disgruntled workers. Disgruntled yeah. employees who weren't shooting their bosses, but they were shooting their mouths off, which was, much easier to handle. And then from there, um, I just kept trying to stay in publishing in some, ha- some level. And I was doing fact-checking at Travel and Leisure, mm-hmm. uh, part-time for someone who wrote for Travel and Leisure, but I was like in the background mm-hmm. and no one knew that I was doing fact-checking. At some point, I went in to present my, the work because I had to, and then I got a job there fact-checking. Essentially, then from there, I went to get a master's degree uh, in specialized journalism and I just kept with the journalism. And from Travel and Leisure, I decided to leave the Glamour magazine mm-hmm. and go to a, a travel trade, which okay. really kind of melded my business background and the idea of traveling. 
And it was like the best thing I ever did. <laughs> it was the best move. It was like, you know, I made like about three great decisions in my life. And <laughs> one of them was going to Travel Agent Magazine, uh, marrying my husband and buying my co-op. Those are my three <laughs> big right. events that have totally, you know, changed my life sure. and made it a really rich life. And so I worked for Travel Agent Magazine as international editor and, um, you know, I learned everything there. I mean, there were all these people who were older than me, older guys mostly, who would, you know, they had that rough talk, <laughs> way of talking, drank right. martinis. They were like the yeah. leftovers. Mad men. Yeah. And, yeah. and they were just essentially so generous. Um, and I was so lucky um, that I lived through, I don't know, three or four different owners of the magazine. And uh, you never knew if they things were going to fall off the shelf, but, you know, went through like Perestroika and Glasnost and, you know, the first tourism treaty between Jordan and Israel. I mean, the Berlin wall falling. I mean, all of this stuff. Right. And it was like, wow. And here I am just a kid from Queens, you know, and in a way it was the most weird job because I was really so rooted, but I think mm -hmm. because I was so rooted, I could do a job like that because right, I knew I was right. coming home. I knew who I was. And you knew where you were coming back to, right? Yeah. And I got to meet like the most interesting people in the world, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, from guys who ran, you know, the, the Shannon airport to like, you know, the cultural minister, um, cultural minister of like Kenya to the uh, head of tourism and justice in Israel. I mean, mm. yeah, it was like, it was like phenomenal. Wow. And um, so I'm still doing it mm -hmm. on a freelance basis. And um, I like writing for the Jerusalem Post. I also like writing for Never Stop Traveling because uh, Jim Ferry's a great editor. And also um, he teaches me a lot and he knows how to handle your work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I write about delis. I write about art. Um, you know, so I, I'm still having a really good time. The only thing I'm missing is my husband. But I mean, I'm having such a great time having followed kind of my passions. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, I, I talk to creative people and the one common thing in a lot of the stories that I hear is, you know, sort of how people sort of back into things or sort of fall into these amazing things and it sort of shapes their life in such a great way. And, and you know, you, you imagine that you're going to hear from them and say, well, I purposely did this and I, you know, I always knew that I wanted to, and it seems to be almost the opposite <laughs> that, that it's like yeah. pe people sort of are interested in things and find their way in through, you know, like your copy editing and it just, you know, fact checking and, and you have this talent, you know, and that's, I mean, if I was, if I had been kind of snooty uh, and I was like one of the older girls in fact checking, um, I might've turned my nose up and said, fact checking. Right. Are you kidding? The bottom of the ladder. But I kind of knew better that, that I was, I was learning, mm -hmm. you know, and I learned a ton of stuff at American Express Travel and Leisure. I learned about corporate America. That was something my father couldn't teach me that in the living room. Right. You know, uh, he didn't have any, any connection with that. Um, so, you know, they were all on the job things. And my father used to tell me that when you go for a job, go for a job that you don't know how to do. <laughs> and even though you're supposed to look like you got the qualifications, he said, what's the point of getting a job that you already know how to do? You want a job that you're going to keep learning because it'll keep you interested in the job. And sure. he was right because I worked for labor unions too. Mm -hmm. And, um, and every one of them has been like a sensational learning experience. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, that's what you want. I mean, if you can be stimulated, yeah, that's great. But you got to be open. You got to be True. open to it and not, uh, you know, like I said, I was I was modest enough to know that I didn't know that much about this or that, but I was going to learn it. And I was going to ask a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I try never to come off like, uh, oh, this is beneath me. I figured nothing's beneath me. All this stuff is like fun. Right. Somebody pays me to sit in front of a computer and write. Are you kidding? <laughs> Right. That's like unbelievable. It's an amazing, um, amazing gift. Yeah, for sure. It's just an amazing ride. It's been wonderful. It's, it's awesome. And, you know, I, I was noticing uh, that some of your verse centers around 
exotic locales, for example, like a gallery in Rome and your poem Lovestuck. So do you find that there's a good amount of cross-pollination between the pursuits of the poetry and travel writing? Yeah, you know what? The thing about um, travel writing, you know, because my travel writing was business writing. Mm -hmm. It was written for, it was kind of advocacy writing, kind of like for travel agents. Mm -hmm. How do you sell this place? Who's the client that that should come to this place? So it was a little bit, it was factual. But as I traveled, I would be talking to a guide, for instance. And, you know, and um, um, maybe I'd ask her, there was a guide in Croatia. Actually, I can can read that piece. Um, uh, I asked her where she was during the conflict, Mm -hmm. right? And she she just kind of turned to me and, and told me her whole story. And I think people tell you stories because they think they're never going to see you again. Right, right. So they tell you like everything. There's a certain freedom there, yeah. Yeah, and and you know, and all I had to do is ask like one question, and I got this tremendous story from her. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I and that a lot of my poetry that's in different locales are all outtakes from my travel writing, the okay. business travel writing. Makes sense. You know, yeah. straight travel. Which is not glamorous, mm-hmm. but depends on what you take from it. You know? Right. I kind of figured that one is definitely going to bleed into the other, and it seems like yeah. you know, that's really the case. And what happens in the poetry mm-hmm. is that uh, a lot of my poetry, I'd say the majority of it, never uses I. Mm-hmm. I'm always like a spectator. Right. I'm always like witnessing, but I'm not essentially in it. I mean, I am, but I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's part of journalism where you have that um, funny little distance. Sometimes that serves you well in a poem. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it means that you haven't gone far enough with the poem. Whereas my sister um, doesn't, wasn't, well, she, she did journalism for a while, but not as long as I did. And her poems really go way past that. And it, it's like, you can really see the depth mm-hmm. um, because she has the freedom and the knowledge about how to get in into that much more than I do. I hold back a little bit. Well, you know. How different. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. And my, and my husband's my husband's work is very much based on witness. Mm-hmm. You know, he worked in um, Bronx psychiatric state as an orderly for a long time as an aide. And he worked, mm-hmm. uh, he, he went to a military college. So that's another book. You know, he uh, did drugs in El Barrio. That's another book. Uh, He got out of drugs, and that's another book. That's Logos. So, you know, (laughs) so his is much more, you know, it's more gritty. It's more street. He uses a lot of, like, um, street jargon Mm -hmm. and, you know, like almost dialect, right? Right. And it's it's really peppered with all that kind of color. So it's witnessing in different ways and, and different degrees, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody brings to the table their experience and that's what it's all about. Well, Maria, I wanted to thank you so much for doing this and taking the time to share your creative journey with us and, and wish you much continued success with all your projects. But before we let you go, you said you were going to do a reading for us, right? What are the titles of the poems you're going to read? And uh, could you tell us a little bit about them before you do it? Uh, you know what? Would you like the one about with the guide? You brought it up. Yeah, I think that would be great. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, that one, um, because it really expresses how you kind of glean something. Okay, so this one is called Mad with Fear. It's in um, Thebes. Okay. She stands alone atop a bleached white fortress overlooking the turquoise Adriatic. The dry Bura wind brushes the heat of spring sun over her skin. A wind only nature could invent, and usually saves for winter. Franitza moved to Dubrovnik's old city, protected by tall, thick limestone walls. Not for a moment did we think they would bomb the old town. Not Napoleon, not even Hitler did such a thing. Even when the bombs fell in their shelling hours, we slept, sometimes for 16 hours a day. I have never slept so many hours, so much of my life, just spent sleeping. Sometimes when we woke, we could not hear. We could not speak. Her pale, wide-spaced eyes sag at the outer corners, and I wonder if they looked that way before the war, before the shelling, before the long sleeps, 
before sharing five liters of water each day among so many who needed to drink or bathe. At night, we tied our wrists one to another so we could not be lost. Her head lifts, her eyes lock on mine for the first time. And we laughed for no reason, mad with fear. Wow, that's great. Amazing, right? That's great. I love it. I like the uncomfortable laughter, the nervous laughter. I like I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um this one is a little bit crazy. Um this is a, a poem, uh it's it's about grief. Uh I don't think it, I don't think it's been published anywhere yet. All right, a first. Okay. Okay, let's see. Yeah, it's a it's but but it's not a it's not a you know, it's not a teardrop or anything. <laughs> um here we go. So it has a little note on the top. Nota bene. Back in the garage, I cannot keep my hands off another box, another find, another set of poems. This batch is from 1998. A trip to Rome, Naples, Basilicata, zoos, restaurants, Lanciano, past fascists, pheasants, gorillas and rats, cats and snails, and amorous piss-sipping goats. My husband wrote down everything he saw. Not like me, but I wish I was like him. Me? I don't write it all down because I worry. I worry, where am I going to put it? But he never worried about where to put it. He just wrote it. He saw it, he wrote it on the spot, just like that. My husband never worried about where he was going to put it. Not a minute did he worry about where he was going to put it. Me? I'm crazy like that. Where am I going to put this word, this observation? But no, my brilliant, crazy husband never thought about where he was going to put it. It didn't have to fit neatly into a box or on a line or in a folder. No, no, no. He never worried about where he was going to put it. He just wrote everything down. And now I have the images so clear as if we were there on Sunday. And I thank my brilliant, crazy husband for never worrying about where he was going to put it. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> that kind of explains his, his way of working. Yeah, too. I was going to say it kind of touches on his way of working. And it also shows the sort of difference between you guys, both great creative talents and Again, I wish you much continued success and, and, and thank you again so much for doing this and be well. Thanks very much for having me. Huge thanks to Maria Lacella for visiting Queens Creative and taking the time out to chat with us. To learn more about Maria and her work, visit poets.org slash poet slash Maria dash Lacella. That's L-I-S-E-L-L-A. Additionally, Ms. Lacella can also be found at marialacella.contently.com. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of QC. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your pods and please visit Queens Public Television on the web at qptv.org. QPTV can also be found on Facebook at facebook.com slash queenspublictelevision and on Twitter and Instagram, we're at QPTV. The executive producer of Queens Creative is Daniel J. Leone. Queens Creative was produced, written, recorded, and mixed by yours truly. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Bacino. Until next time, cheers, folks. Cheers, folks.